0: You can turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 gives us one of the gospel accounts of Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem on this day several thousand years ago. Before we get into our text this morning, um, did anyone watch Canada (laughs) defeat the Americans uh, in the hockey gold medal deal? Anybody watched that several weeks ago? Some of you. Um, Odds are most of you have seen replays of it. Uh, There was an estimated 17 million Canadians. More than half of the population of Canada. Tuned in to that game. And uh, they made it the most watched TV broadcast in Canadian history. And if you watched it, it was a nail-biter. It was a good... Good hockey match. When America tied the game with only a couple seconds left, many thought the dream was over. But the winning goal from Canada came only seven minutes and 40 seconds into overtime. Sidney Crosby from Canada scored against the U.S. goalie Ryan Miller in overtime to give Canada the Olympic men's hockey gold medal. Amazing defeat for our country and an incredible win for theirs. At least it was them and not somebody like Russia or somebody. You know, at least they're kind of an ally, I guess we can take heart in that. But if, if you watched any kind of news broadcast after that, as far as sports is concerned on TV, you see this thing, this goal constantly being rewound and rewound and replayed and replayed. And as soon as the goal was made, I mean, people just went berserk. Well, at least half of them did, (laughs) who were gathered there. And uh, many were very happy at that moment. But others, obviously Americans, were very much disappointed and frustrated. And the one thing I started to think about is no matter what sporting event you go to, usually half of the crowd more or less, is rooting for the team or against the other team or vice versa. It's kind of split into some kind of percentage, maybe not exactly half. But there's people who are gathered there who are for those who are winning and for the losers and vice versa. Um, And it seems that when when we see things like that, it doesn't matter what the event is different people are going to respond differently to the same event. I mean, how the Americans responded when he hit that puck in the goal wasn't going to pull that puck back out. It wasn't going to change the outcome of the game. And the way the Canadians responded wasn't going to change the outcome outcome of the match. And we see that, really, when we look at Christ riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We see three distinct groups of people who were present. We see those who are happy. We see those who are sad. And basically, there's another group that just could care less. You see them at games, too, a lot of times, at sporting events. They're the ones that are, you know, just kind of looped out of their mind or whatever. And they they don't know who's winning. They're just cheering, you know. (laughs) They could care less. They're just there to party. And... It's the same thing here as we look into our text this morning. We're going to see three groups of people. Um, today is Palm Sunday. And this is remembered because it's the day Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. I remember Palm Sunday always got me excited as I was growing up in the Catholic faith because Palm Sunday knew meant that Lent was almost over. And inevitably, every year at Lent, as a Catholic, as a young boy, I would always give up candy. Or even more generically, sweets. And oh, I used to just hate it. And then they came up with some rule, well, on Sunday you can eat, but you know the rest of the day you can't. So I used to gorge myself on Sundays and break Lent because it was Sunday. I don't know if that was a real rule or not, or our family just made it up, but whatever. We did that. But I remember thinking, Palm Sunday, we got the little palms from the the priest, which were blessed, and and I remember thinking, yeah, just a couple more days. And we'll be able to eat our Easter eggs and all the candy that's in our Easter basket. Because Easter was very much a disconnected holiday from my faith. I mean, we knew that Jesus rose from the dead, but we also knew somehow the Easter bunny came. So that meant more to us than Jesus rising from the grave. But just like a sporting event... We're going to see three distinct groups of people that were here when Jesus rose in. We're going to see those who saw triumph. We're going to see those who saw tragedy. And we're also going to see those who just kind of missed the whole thing. They had no real interest, and they didn't see any significance in the events of that day. Well, I want to give you a little illustration this morning. Of someone else who rode into a village. And there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. A lot of expense made to make this little entourage possible. And on December 4th, 1977, in Bangui, the capital of a central African empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty... Bocassar the first. The price tag for that single event, which was designed in by by the way, by French designer Oliver Bryce, was $25 million. That was back in 1977. For a single coronation. At 10.10 that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. And their procession, the procession began with eight of Bocasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. And they were follow, followed by Jean Badel Bocasar II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, the favorite of Bocasa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Levin of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor arrived in an imperial coach, bed-decked with gold eagles and drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. When the marine band blared the sacred march of his majesty, Emperor the I, his highness strode forth. Cloaked in a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. White gloves adorned his hands, pearl slippers his feet. On his brow he wore a crown, a gold crown, of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman Romans of old. A symbol of favor of the gods. As the sacred march came to a conclusion... Bokasov seated himself on his $2.5 million eagle throne. Took his gold laurel wreath off. And as Napoleon, 173 years earlier, had done. Took his $2.5 million crown. Which was topped off. Listen to this, ladies. With an 80 carat diamond. And he placed it on his own head. At 10.43... December 4th, 1977, the 20th century saw a new emperor. History tells us mercifully, Bokassa's reign was not as imposing as his coronation because just two years later, while Bokassa was out of the country, the French engineered a successful coup. But unfortunately, it came too late for many of his victims. Among them, 200 children who had been executed because they complained about the expense of their school uniforms. Bocasal did his best to establish an enduring kingdom, but he failed infamously. And so you know what? It's that way with the kings and the rulers of the earth on which we live. Try as they will, even though they cling tightly to all their garb and all their wealth and their riches, when death comes, they always lose it. They always lose their empire, their their kingdoms. They leave it all behind. But every Palm Sunday, I want you to remember, every Palm Sunday, and often at other times, we worship a king, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice with him because it was not so for that king of kings. He died, but he rose again from the dead. Now, let's read out of Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, just the, so we can get the, the feeling of what's going on that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, right before this, uh, he's done a lot of different miracles. He uh, raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. So there's a lot of people interested in Jesus Christ. Anybody that raised anybody from the dead was a person of interest. Verse 28, it says... When he had said this, he went on ahead, coming up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now right about then, I probably would have said, wait a minute, Lord, how do do you know that this thing's going to be there? But he's God, so he obviously knew it. Verse 32. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to him, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes out on the road ahead of him. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if, I should, if, they should, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything. For all the people were attentive to hear him. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. People, hordes of people were following the Lord Christ at this point in time. Um, You know, that's, if if somebody starts to raise people from the dead, usually people will, that attracts people, right? I mean, if I I knew somebody in Redwood City that was raising people from the dead, I'd want to go see it, wouldn't you? I mean, that would just be an incredible thing to see. Well, you have to understand, Bethany, where the Lazarus was, is about two and a half miles southeast of Jerusalem. And Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he stopped off in Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead and visit the family. And now word came back as it kind of spread out in the crowd that he's coming to Jerusalem. And throughout the entire city, everyone was talking about what Jesus had just done with Lazarus raising him from the dead. I mean, you could just kind of imagine this, you know, as the kind of the, the word spreads out like wildfire. This guy actually raised somebody from the dead. And it didn't take long for word to spread from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so, there was a lot of rumors flying around about this Jesus and who he was or who he wasn't. Everyone had their own mental Maybe picture in their mind of what he looked like and what he did and some of the things. And maybe if he could raise somebody from the dead, maybe he could bless me and my family. So, hey, we got to go to Jerusalem and see this guy. That's where he's going. And so thousands and thousands and thousands and even millions of people were gathered because it was the Passover in preparation there at this time and when they heard Jesus had raised from the raised somebody from the dead that even confirmed their expectations of him and so they began to just kind of incredibly come to this city now in the story we see that he's he's making this trip and it says that he rode the colt of a donkey and he rode on this road path kind of a thing on this on this on this cult and people began to lay down their their clothes and they really believed that he was going to be the the king the one who's going to overthrow the roman government he's going to take everything back and give them back their rights and boy this is the man look at all the power he has and they were excited all the 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 jewish people of his day and so this incredible crowd was pressing in around him and making kind of way as he, as he rode in. Conservative estimates, you go by the census of that day, say that there were 256,000 lambs sacrificed in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And that means about an average of 10 people for each lamb. And so you're, you're talking upwards of 3 million people Practicing Jews gathered there at this point in time. There could have been easily millions of people in the streets. And what they were screaming was Hosanna, which means save now. That's what that word means. The text in John 12, if you look at that gospel, it says that the, uh, there was a multitude of people. And what that means in the original language is a big one, a big group of people. Okay, just an incredibly large gathering. And in chapter 12, verse 19 of John, of course, the Pharisees hated Jesus. We've been seeing that throughout Matthew. And at this point, they basically threw up their hands. And they thought, you know, the whole world is following this guy. We're going to lose our power. We have to do something. So picture this in your mind. Jesus is entering the city. He's entering the city where there's probably a million people screaming, Hosanna, save now. The Pharisees are standing off behind all these hordes of people, plotting and trying to come up with a plan, figuring out what can we do to overturn this man's religious following. And in that crowd, as Jesus rode in, basically there was... Different kinds of people. Um, Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Christ can bring to our souls a kingdom touch, a kind of a, a regal understanding. Jesus was at the end of a journey. And this journey began nine months before when he purposely began zigzagging back and forth. If you plot where he went it, throughout the Gospels, you can see him almost zigzagging, zigzagging back and forth throughout Galilee and Samaria and Perea and finally Judea. And this is his final journey of his ministry. He administered probably, commentaries tell us, in at least 35 localities. And each trip was time, just right, in order to end up at Jerusalem in the end at the time of the Passover. Now it's the Passover, and he was back in Bethlehem on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Expectations were running high. And he makes his way toward Jerusalem. And the religious leaders are figuring out, trying to figure out how they can kill him, get rid of him. Discredited. Well, the first group of people I see here in verses 37 and 38 are those who are interested in the triumph of Palm Sunday. Um, Look at what it says in verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples, and that just means followers. That's not necessarily the 12 disciples. A disciple is just somebody who follows somebody. It doesn't even necessarily mean they were Christians. They could have just been following Jesus to see the miracles. We don't know. But it says, "...the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen." And they said, "...Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." This is a week before the cross where Jesus enters into Jerusalem... To the cries and praise and worship of all these people. That's why it's called the triumphal entry. And it was at this time that Jesus was kind of at the apex of his public ministry. He was recognized by many as being the Messiah. That one who was sent from God. Matthew, it says, Hosanna to the son of David. Mark says, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. John says, blessed is the king of Israel. And as I said, that word Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. It was an expression of praise that they would use. And so these crowds, this first group, the the group that received him, recognized who Jesus was. Because they said, well, they recognized him because of all these miracles that he had done. A week later, a similar scene took place on the cross. Just as when Jesus came into Jerusalem, there were three groups of people, those who were, received him, who were interested in the triumph, those who were interested in the tragedy, who rejected him, and those who just didn't care. One week later, as Jesus hung on the cross... One of the thieves, the Bible says, who was nailed to a cross beside Jesus, comes to Christ. He recognized his crime, the Bible says, and he knew he was getting exactly what he deserved. He had broken the law and he was receiving punishment for it and he was willing to own up to it. And that thief cried out, Hosanna, that thief cried out, save me now. He recognized Christ as the Messiah. It was a simple declaration of a man hanging on a cross, moments, if not seconds, from death itself. And he cried out with a simple declaration of faith and trust in who Christ was. And he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, which indicated that he realized that Christ was the Messiah, that Christ was the King. And Jesus responded to his request with an affirmation and with the promise of salvation. You Remember what he said. He said, today you will be what? With me in paradise. There's no theological arguments attached here. He didn't have him jump through a bunch of hoops. He didn't have him pray a sinner's prayer. He simply received the gift of eternal life. And he's literally on his deathbed, or his case, death cross. Christ had a way of putting people at ease when it came close to death, if they knew who he was. The Bible says we don't need to fear death anymore. Because Christ has died and has risen again victorious over sin and death. You no longer need to fear the grave. Some of you I know are getting older. We're all getting older. I always think that when somebody says it like that. Well, Some of you are getting older as if they're not. (laughs) No, we all get older. And as we get older, our bodies begin to creak and to do things that our bodies normally wouldn't do. And sometimes maybe you you get injured now and it takes a little while for you to recuperate. Whereas you were young, you know, you slap a band aid on it and you're back at it. But with that being said, aren't you glad as a believer that you don't have to fear death? That death was conquered? that, you know what, it's nothing to be fearful of the grave. I mean, not that we have to be sick and, and look you know, forward to dying. I mean, I want to spend time with my wife and my grandkids and church family and everything before I die. But you know what? I don't fear that day. Because first of all, I know that the Bible says, we went over this Wednesday night in our group, is that God has appointed a day for us to die. That kind of just helps you relax in the whole thing. Seriously. I mean, God has appointed when you were going to be born, and he's appointed a day for you to die. And unless you're greater than God, there's nothing you're going to do to change that. So just go along for the ride. Trust Christ as he takes you through this life. But I praise God every day that I don't have to be fearful of death. You've recognized that you have a need of a savior and you've asked Christ to save you as that thief did on the cross. He'll do just that. You need to thank him for what he has done and give him the honor, do his name as in the way you live your life. Like those early followers that we've seen here, as they worship Christ on the way to Jerusalem, they laid down their clothes before the coming king. The Bible says we need to lay down our lives for our Lord and Savior as we move through this life. So you see those who see this as a triumphant thing going on because they've recognized that Christ is who He said He is. Like in any gathering, there's always other people. Look at verse 39 and 40. It says, And some of the Pharisees We know where we're at now, right? The tragedy, those who rejected Christ. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They wanted him to tell them to stop all this craziness. You're disrupting the public avenue. You're you're, you're causing a disruption in this crowd. Stop. Tell them to stop praising you is what they're saying. But he answered them, and he said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. See, at the triumphal entry, the Pharisees had understood clearly what the crowds were all about, what they were saying. They knew that the crowds were were naming Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their coming king. And they knew in their own viewpoint that that was blasphemous against God. And Jesus responded to their complaint that basically, you know what? I'm more than just a prophet. I'm more than just a king. I'm literally God incarnate. Because the only reason a rock would praise him is if he himself were the maker of that rock. And that's what he's pointing out to them. So the Pharisees made up their mind that Christ, that Jesus, could not have been who he claimed to be. So within a week, they ordered him executed. They had him killed. It's interesting, a week later, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, that there was another thief on the other side of Christ Who was nailed to the cross. Who had committed crimes, injustices, and he was paying the penalty of his crime. But it's interesting. You have Jesus Christ. You have one thief who comes to saving faith literally on his deathbed. And you have another criminal on the other side. Who had a totally different perspective. Because he denied Christ. He made up his mind that Jesus Christ was not who he claimed to be. And he actually even wrote him off as some crazy man dying for some crime. He rejected his claim to deity. And he rejected his claim that he was the Messiah. And he rejected his claim of anything being a savior. Imagine that. Jesus was so close. To both of these guys. They're all in the same predicament. They're all being executed on crosses. This thief criminal was so close to the gift of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. and He was so close as it was being offered to him. And yet he rejected it. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, George Wilson was a postal clerk. And George Wilson committed a crime. He robbed a federal payroll from a train. And in the process of robbing the train to get the federal payroll, he killed a guard. He was caught. The court convicted him. And they sentenced him to hang. Well, because of the public sentiment at the time against capital punishment, a movement began to kind of fester up that somehow we need to secure a presidential pardon for Wilson. He'd been a faithful federal employee up to this point, this is the first offense he had ever committed. And as public opinion pushed toward that end, eventually, Andrew Jackson intervened with a presidential pardon. If you know anything about a presidential pardon, it's a pretty powerful deal. It's not like you just give them out like candy. Amazingly, Wilson refused the presidential pardon. Outright refused it. This had never happened before, as you can only imagine. And so the Supreme Court was asked to rule whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. If it's so granted. Could you refuse it? And at the time, Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision. And here's what the court said. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. George Wilson, as punishment for his crime, was hanged. Pardon, declared the Supreme Court, must not only be granted, but it also must be accepted. See, we live in a world, beloved, that does not recognize Jesus Christ for who he was and who he is. Though a pardon has been granted, though the means to a pardon has been granted, they refuse to accept it. They reject the idea that Jesus could be Lord and Savior. And they pass him off as just a prophet or a good teacher or a moral teacher. Or whatever you want to say. They ignore his works. They ignore his words. They see our praise as blasphemy. They mock it. They would desire us just to be quiet and go away. But even if we should stop praising our Lord and Savior, beloved, all creation would still cry out and worship Him because He is the Creator. See, the kingdom of God, you have to understand, beloved, is not forcefully advancing. But on the other hand, nothing is going to stop it. Because God is at work. Your belief won't stop it. Your words, your works won't stop it. God has a plan for the nations, and that plan will become reality. But as I always say, Jesus doesn't drag sinners kicking and screaming into heaven. Somehow, He works through our will, He works through our volition to come to Him. Even though he says that salvation is a sovereign act of God. The pardon has been granted. Have you accepted it? The Pharisees refused to. Therefore, this whole thing of a coming king was not triumphant at all. It was tragic. And then we see the third group of people here. that I want to draw your attention to Verses 41 to 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I think the biggest group of people we see here on Palm Sunday is this third group, to be honest. It's probably the largest group of bystanders that day. They saw what was happening. They saw him riding in on the colt. They saw the people laying down the things, waving the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, save now. They saw everything that happened. But it just kind of went over their head. With the Passover approaching, the road to Jerusalem probably would have been a very, very, very busy place. Kind of like 101 during the week when you're trying to get to work. Just packed. Just packed. Certainly, there must have been many there that day that wondered what was happening. Perhaps they heard all the things that Jesus had done. They were spectators. They were the people who were undecided. Didn't know what to make of him. It says when Jesus looks up at Jerusalem as he approaches, he knows what's going to happen. Because he's God. And I'm just not just talking his own crucifixion. He sees the day in AD 70 when it will be burned and destroyed. He sees the destruction of Jerusalem. He sees the enemy that will triumph over it. That it would be destroyed because it didn't recognize the time of God's coming. Just as before... As we go a week later to the cross. We see also that there's not just the one thief that comes to Christ. And the one thief that denies who he is. But there's also many bystanders. At Calvary. Many people who are just standing around. Seeing what's going on. At the foot of the cross. There were many soldiers who probably mocked and cursed Jesus. But you know what? I'm sure that there were those who were just doing their job. Hey, I'm just here to do the job. Not here to convict anybody. I'm just doing what I'm told to do. Got to crucify this guy. Let's crucify him. Get it over with. They weren't there to bless Christ. They weren't there to curse him. They were simply there because they were supposed to be. That's what was expected of them. They were even playing games. The Bible tells us at the foot of the cross. These men were so close. So close to the gift of salvation. Eternal gift of salvation in Christ. And they sat at the foot of the cross. Inches away from the Savior of the world. Seeing if by chance they could make a buck or two. As they took the clothes of Jesus. And rolled dice for them. They were so close. And yet so far away. They neither accepted. Nor rejected. They were simply there. Killing time. Waiting for these three criminals to die. So they could probably go home. To their families. Killing time. Playing games. It's unfortunate. But you know what? There are people... Like that here today. You're here, but you're on the sidelines. You claim to see what goes on, and yet you really don't see. You don't outrightly curse God, but you're not willing to praise Him either. You don't necessarily deny the claims of Christ in Scripture. But you haven't really accepted them either. You don't shout insults and mock him and his followers. But you also don't fall at his feet. And call him Lord. You're simply here. Sitting in church. Week after week. Maybe you come because you're expected to come. Maybe you sing because you're expected to sing. I don't know. Maybe you come for the food afterwards. (laughs) But I think one thing you're failing to see is that you're so close to the cross which playing games This time of year, beloved, is a time of decision. We've seen that this morning. Two thieves crucified together with Christ on either side. One believes, one rejects. One is saved, the other is lost. It's a very picture of decision. See, for each one of us here today, it's a day of decision. You must decide for yourself. I can't decide for you between triumph and tragedy. Either accept Jesus for who he is, repent of your sin, and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or reject him. It's hard to just keep playing games at the foot of the cross. One writer says either call him a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but you're going to have to decide. When Jesus looked up at Jerusalem, the Bible says in our text this morning that he wept. He wept. He said, Even if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. And he goes on, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and what will come. See, Jesus saw the future of a city, he knew what would happen. And he wept because he knew the city and he, he loved the people within that city. But they would reject him and it would be destroyed. What does Jesus see when he looks at you today? What does he see in your future? Does he rejoice? Or does he weep? That even though he was so close to you, you still refused to recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is passing us by today just like he did the hordes of people on Palm Sunday. And you have to decide what you're going to do. How many times have you seen him pass by? I'm asking you today, don't let him pass by another time. Without you acknowledging your sin and crying out to him and ask him to save you. Years ago at Niagara Falls, there were two men who were in a boat and they found themselves caught in the current. And they realized the boat didn't have enough power to get out of the current. It was going to go over the falls. And so they figured, you know, we got to get out of this boat. So they both jumped out of the boat and they began to swim for shore. Well... You know, the officials surrounding them were kind of working on a plan to get them out of the water, obviously. And at the last minute, ropes from the shore were thrown out to them once the authorities arrived. And the one man grabbed the rope that was in his reach and he held on to it and he was pulled to shore. The other man grabbed a different rope. That was thrown out to him. But witnesses say the same time as he was just grabbing a hold of that rope, there was also a big log that kind of just came right up alongside of him. And the authorities were yelling at him, Grab the rope, grab the rope. But his instincts just that didn't make sense. And he grabbed a hold of this log because he thought maybe he could pull himself up on the log. And he let go of the rope. I'll tell you what happened. The one man was pulled to shore by the rope. The other man held onto this log, thoughtless and confused, instead of seizing the rope that was given to him. It was a fatal mistake. See, both of these men were in imminent peril. But the one who was drawn to shore was saved because he had a connection to the land. The other, clinging to the loose floating log, was carried over the falls and obviously died. See, there's something to be said between the saving connection with God that has been offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Picture it this way. He is on the shore of eternity, holding the rope. And as we lay hold of him... With the hand of faith, He pulls us to shore. But you know what? We live in a life where there's logs floating around us every day. And we can cling to them if we wish. You have to cling to one or the other. But I want to leave you with the the simple decision. You have to choose. What you are going to hold on to? I pray that you would reach out to Him this morning. And be saved. Join the thief who cried out for salvation. And I guarantee you that today you too will be seated with Christ in paradise. And the fear of death will have lost its grip. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we look at Palm Sunday and from the aspect of triumph or tragedy, really that's in our Ballpark, you have made a way clearly for us to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have clearly provided the pardon that's needed. But are we willing to accept it? Are we willing to yield our will to yours? Are we willing to acknowledge our sin before a holy God? And repent or turn from that sin and turn to you and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what will save you. Coming to church won't save you. Being baptized won't save you. Being nice to people won't save you. Reading the Bible won't save you. Saying prayers won't save you. Singing songs won't save you. The only thing that will save you your humble repentance before a holy God and your willingness to put your faith and trust in a Savior named the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you do that this morning? Father, we pray for each one here that you would work in their hearts. Lord, it's never too late to cry out to you. I know probably many of us have pondered salvation before we were saved several times. Until you finally flip the switch, finally you you made everything complete and we were saved. But God, it's good to ponder our salvation. It's good to stop and ask ourselves, are we saved or not? And if we're not, then we need to pursue that and keep pursuing it until you make it clear to us. Through your word, through the evidence of you working in our life. That you truly saved us. For believers Lord I pray that we'd use this time of year. For your glory for your honor. That we would just kind of take it down a notch. And begin to look around us. And see who maybe we can reach out to. This season. Maybe they'd be open. To an invitation. For dinner or lunch. Where we could explain the gospel to them in simple terms. And see them. Come to saving knowledge through Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted him, I pray you cry out from your heart to his today. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.